Welcome to the Sourcing Hero podcast produced by Una, a group purchasing organization that empowers sourcing heroes and Art of Procurement, the world's largest procurement podcast network. I'm your host, Kelly Barner. The goal of the Sourcing Hero podcast is to capture the epic stories of people who are rising up and beating the odds to create exceptional value within procurement directly from those heroes themselves. Today, my guest here on the Sourcing Hero podcast is Simon Horton. Simon is the founder of Negotiation Mastery, where he provides negotiating, training, and coaching for banks, law firms, global blue chip companies, and even hostage negotiators. He has written several books, including his latest title, just released this past spring, called Change Their Mind, Six Steps to Persuade Anyone, Anytime. So, hi, Simon. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Hi, Kelly. My pleasure. So I shared a little bit of high-level background in my intro, but what else is important for people to know about your professional journey to this point? Uh, yeah. Uh, no, that was, that was a very good intro. Thank you very much for that. Um, uh, one not professional thing is that actually I'm just, I think it might be useful for the audience to know that actually I'm just recovering from COVID. So uh, if I do burst into a horrible coughing fit and die <laughs> mid-sentence, the audience will know why now. Um, but in terms of the professional experience, perhaps the only other thing that I might add is um, just to give you a little bit of background, why I wrote the, the new book, Change Their Mind. Um, as you know, my first book on negotiation was called The Leader's Guide to Negotiation, published by the Financial Times. And the, the purpose of that book was to give a step-by-step -step framework for people, for negotiators to reach win-win outcomes. I'm a huge believer in win-win, even for selfish reasons, even if you are the most evil, selfish psychopath in the world, and I'm sure none of your audience are, but even if they were to be, your best approach is still to go for win-win. But I get a lot of pushback, the pushback being along the lines of, yes, Simon, win-win, great in theory, but you haven't seen the person I'm negotiating with right now. They are the most evil, selfish psych psychopath in the world, and you can't get win-win with them. Or the other pushback I regularly get is, yeah, great in theory, but in my situation, there isn't a win-win to be had. It's zero sum. We're just negotiating about price. Uh, therefore, any cent I get is at their expense. They're going to fight it. Any cent they get is at my expense. I'm going to fight it. So there isn't a win-win to be had. So the purpose of the first book was to give a very practical framework for reaching win-win, even in those situations, even if you're not negotiating with a win-win player and even in apparently zero-sum situations. But I would still get pushback with people coming, coming up with all kinds of extreme situations. Mm, but what about in this situation? And what about in this situation? You know, situations that were never going to happen in real life, but... That was what they were worried about. So for the second book, Change Their Mind, <coughs> excuse me, um, I decided, okay, 
let's find out the extreme situations. Uh, and so what I decided to do was interview people who negotiated and persuaded successfully even in such extreme situations. So in other words, hostage negotiators. I interviewed, I interviewed hostage negotiators. I interviewed people who negotiated peace treaties. I interviewed interrogators. I interviewed billionaires. I interviewed um, people who could persuade across the political divide. So the Republican voter who could persuade the Democrat voter or vice versa, the vaxxer who could persuade the anti-vaxxer or vice versa. You know, these are really difficult conversations to have. How can you have those successfully? Um, and so this book, Change Their Mind, is, is really about, okay, well, what works in the real extreme situations, kind of the, the hardest kind of negotiations and persuasion situations out there? Well, and perhaps I'm applying my own perspective on this, but having read through, and thank you for the early copy, one of the perks of, of speaking <laughs> to folks about their books, I get an early peek inside these covers. I got the impression that the vast majority of us in the real world are not naturally great at persuading. I certainly don't feel great at persuading. I don't know if that's a sort of a valid approach to come to it from. Um, but are, are most of us not naturally good at persuading? And if that is in fact true, why do you think that is? Well, I think perhaps I'd say we're not as good as we could be. Um, I, I'm not necessarily saying we're not very good at persuading. And Kelly, I'm sure you're much better at persuading uh, th th than you think we are. Don't forget, you, you're, you're saying that you've read, you're, you're coming to that conclusion partly after reading this book. And don't forget, that this book is about those extreme sit situations. But at the same time, I think you do make a good point that we could all be much better at persuading. Uh, and often it's, interestingly, often it's those people who, who say they're not very good, actually think they're often better than they think they are. And it's those people who say that they are very good mm. that I think, mm, I'm not sure I trust that quite so much kind of thing. Um, and why? I think it's because we assume the world sees the situation, uh, or sorry, we assume that everybody else sees the world the same way that we do. So the logic in, in whatever situation it is, the logic that persuaded us, we think will persuade them too. And that's what we bring to the conversation. But it doesn't because they're very different. We came to our logic because we are a certain type of person. We have a certain perspective on that situation. We bring a certain history to it. We've got our set of values. We've got our personality type, etc. cetera, that we, that we bring to the situation. And so a, a particular logic works to persuade us in that situation. But the other person that we're trying to persuade now, uh, they're a very different person. They've got a very different perspective. They bring a very different history to it. They've got a very different set of drivers, a different set of criteria they're uh, looking for, different set of values they're considering, etc. So the logic that persuaded us isn't going to be the logic that persuades them. So... If we want to get better, we need to take time to think about it from their perspective. What is the logic uh, that will persuade them, which might be quite different to the logic that persuaded us? 
And it's interesting. I was thinking as you were talking, I suppose I should give myself some credit because I did persuade you to come on this podcast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. You're a master persuader. I may have not have realized I was, I was persuading. Um, but here's the other thing. And this is something that even as someone who does not consider myself a persuasive person really connected with me. You know, when we think about persuasion, I think of that as an action. And it might be we persuade by talking, we persuade by writing, we persuade by demonstrating. All of those are active things. But you also talk about the importance of listening, which while outwardly is a passive activity, it's actually an incredibly important part of the journey. What role do active listening skills play in the act of persuasion? Listening is massive, absolutely massive. I mean, to, to give you an example of how massively important it is, the hostage negotiation model, which is a very successful model, again, working in extreme circumstances, um, the fundamental building block of that model is listening. Everything else is built on that. So in my view, <coughs> excuse me, people have a deep need to feel listened to. And so, you know, everybody has this need to feel listened to. And so if you can address that need, you're halfway there already, just simply by listening to them and demonstrably listening, visibly listening. Listening itself is not enough, but demonstrably listening. Uh, then that need will be addressed and now they're going to open up to you and listen to you in return. If you think about it, they're not going to listen to you unless you listen to them first. You can't expect them to listen to you. you. You want them to not just listen to you, but listen to you properly. You want them to really process what you're saying and really understand it and really take it on board. Well, they're only going to do that if you go first, if you fully listen to them and process it and really try and understand it and take it on board. That's you can't expect them to unless you go first. So, um, and it's tremendously important for other reasons as well. After all, in, in any persuasion situation, typically you know half the answer and they know half. So you've got to listen to them to find out what the whole of the solution is going to be. And even more than that, even there's whatever the outcome is, you're going to have to frame it differently depending on who you're talking to. You know, if, I, if I've got a particular message I want to get across, and I'm going to, and let's say I'm talking to uh, the CFO, that's going to be I'm going to require a different framing for them compared to the CEO, compared to the head of sales, compared to the head of purchasing, compared to the head of legal. You're going to have to frame that same message slightly differently to each of them. Well, how do you know how to frame it for that given individual? Well, you find out through listening, through the deep listening. In the deep listening, listening um, to not just the words, but behind the words, listening to the emphasis, listening to the pause, listening to the you know, slight shift in tonality, these kinds of things, you'll find out how exactly how to frame your message to help that person make the decision you want them to make. 
And to that point about framing and coming to the conversation with half of the answer, we actually need to back up one more step and think about the preparation that has to take place before you're on the phone, at the table. Um, So many people, especially in their jobs, are so busy today that I actually have started the practice of, I certainly check through my agenda for the next day, the night before, but I don't necessarily anticipate that others will do the same. And if I'm speaking to someone for the first time that I haven't talked to in a while, I usually try to find a way to very politely start each call with, hi, do you know who I am and do you know why we're here? Because I think a lot of people are skidding on two wheels into each next session. They're not sort of mentally prepared for whatever kind of work is supposed to take place during that that period of time. What is the preparation that we need to invest in both to be prepared to frame the situation and also to be able to listen to and truly hear what the other party or parties are saying to us? Yeah, very good question. Um, And what I like there is that you're, you're including listening as part of your preparation. How can we prepare to listen better? And, and I think, um, you know, and, and that is a, a nice thing to do. We, we, we often, when we do take the time to prepare, we, we kind of prepare, prepare at best about the material outcome we're after. Yeah. Uh, if... Or, or sorry, usually if we do any preparation, it's about the material the outcome that we're after. If we go a little bit further, we might kind of strategize about how we're going to get there. If we go a little bit further still, we might prepare about uh, the other person and do some research on the other party and uh, and what's their situation and their perspective, etc. And all of these things are really good uh, things to prepare. But you can also prepare things like your state of mind that you want to be in so you know maybe maybe this is a really big deal that you are you want you want to get through uh and so you're a little bit nervous about it so can you prepare about being confident in it or maybe you had you had a bit of a setback in the last one so can you prepare a bit of resilience in this or, or what mood what frame of mind do you want to be in for, for the meeting perhaps a friendly mood perhaps a robust mood what mood do you want to be in can you prepare that for that meeting but equally things like listening we can prepare for so we might let, let's say we decide we want to be able to listen better Okay, okay, great. This meeting coming up, I'm going to make sure I'm going to prepare better. Right, how am oh, sorry, how I'm going to listen better. How am I going to, what am I going to do in my preparation to be able to listen better in this meeting coming up? For and for example, let's say it's um let's say it's an online meeting. Great. Okay, I'm going to write out a sheet of paper that I'm going to have on my desk that nobody on the online meeting will see, but just on that sheet of paper, it'll just say in great big capital letters, listen. And then every time I see that, it's just going to remind me to listen more. Uh, Or I might write out, listen out for, and then a list of things like values, drivers, criteria, personality type, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that I'm going to specifically listen out for. And then by 
putting that into my preparation uh, and then committing to doing that in the meeting, uh, I'm more likely to improve that as a skill. Uh, and uh, and then that is, yeah, a nice part of the overall preparation that we need to be doing. The other thing that I'm curious about is sort of what follows successful persuasion. So let's assume we've all read your book, we put in our time preparing, we listened well, and we convinced the other party. Now, we've talked about different types of persuasion. So in some cases, I might just be trying to persuade someone to think differently about an issue. But in other cases, my persuasion will only be successful if they do something that I want them to do. And it might be showing up for a meeting prepared. It might be choosing a specific supplier or considering a new company for part of the business. But it could also be I persuade you to let the hostages go or I persuade you to not jump. To what extent do those of us trying to become more effective at persuasion need to think beyond the point of agreement to some type of accountability? Do do we need to sort of stay in touch then to still make sure that action happens? Does the persuasion have a long tail that we need to be aware of? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. It's it's a very important part of, of, of the negotiation. You know, I often start my courses by going through kind of different phases of the negotiation from the preparation to the opening, the exploring, problem solving, closing, and then the implementation. And, and I ask the, the delegates, which is the most important stage? And the answer is the implementation. Everything else that comes before that counts for nothing if it doesn't get implemented in the world, in the real world, in the way you want it to. You, you know, it's very easy for them to say yes to loads of things. And you, and you can even go away with a sheet of paper with all kinds of signatures on it. And you go, hey, look what I've got. Look what a great negotiator I am. But if it doesn't happen in the real world, it counts for nothing. And so you're absolutely right there in um, making sure it happens in the real world is perhaps the most important part of the negotiation. So they do need to be in the other side. This is one of the reasons, one of the main reasons why your negotiation does need to be win-win. Because if the other side isn't incentivized to implement it as agreed, well, they're not going to. Or they're going to find a way of evening it up in a way perhaps that you don't necessarily know about. So, you know, that they might put their juniors on the job or they might cut corners or use cheaper material or follow the, the letter of the agreement rather than the spirit of the agreement, these kinds of things. Um, and you might not find this out until it's too late. Um, the, the, the great example of that, um, certainly in the UK and in Europe, I'm not sure whether you had a similar situation in uh, North America, you you might have, uh, but uh, we had a few years ago. We had uh, the horse meat scandal yes. over here, yeah, where basically the big supermarkets squeezed their suppliers because they could, and they squeezed them more, and they squeezed them more, and they squeezed them more, and then the suppliers said, yeah, yeah, whatever, we'll sign, and then. They put horse meat in the burger instead of beef, <laughs> and you know it. Be and it became power, and it became public knowledge, and it was a 
a lose-lose outcome, a lose-lose all around, lose for the public, for the buying public, it was a lose for the supermarkets, and it was a lose for the suppliers. So uh, the implementation is uh, the most important thing of it. And so uh, it does think, so considerations there means it does need to be win-win. They do need to be incentivized. Do, in your negotiation, do consider you know, do scenario planning of what will you do in these instances. Have <coughs> try and structure the deal so that you can trust them. Um, so, a really simple example, you know, the, the simplest example of that is payment on on delivery. Um, now you know they're going to deliver because they're only going to get paid if they do deliver. So you've structured the deal that you kind of can trust that they will implement the way you want them to implement them to. So can you do, can you find structures like this? Uh, Incentivizations clause, penalty clauses, and that that whole idea of trust but verify. So do trust that the the, the working relationship will benefit from trust, but verify, have the verification procedures in place. And it, you know, we're, we're not being naive here. And it is those verification procedures that enable you to trust because now, you know they're not going to do anything dodgy because they will be caught out by the verification procedures. Uh, so, yeah, tr- trust but verify. Uh, it was um, Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev's yes. catchphrase uh, when they were negotiating a nuclear disarmament at a time when they trusted each other but c- couldn't trust each other's administrations or each other's military, if you like. So, um Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting. This hadn't really occurred to me until thinking about sort of the combined subject matter of your two books. You know, you talk about the importance of win-win, which of course, in theory, we're all going to agree to. And then this being about persuasion. I think for me, the importance of bringing those two ideas together is I always worry a little bit about, I'm making this up, persuader's guilt this, this is a source of stress for me because if I persuade you to think something, to do something, and then it turns out I was wrong or I shouldn't have tried to persuade you to change your beliefs on something, maybe that was further than it was appropriate for me to go, as long as I also abide by the rules and values of win-win... I hopefully can't put myself in a situation where I've done something that's good for me, but bad for you because I was such an effective persuader. Um, I like the way that those two ideas come together. I think there's a lot of value in that. Yeah, I I, I agree. I think um, (coughs) persuasion, manipulation, et cetera, all of these things, there's a gray area there. Um, For me, a key distinction is, is it for their advantage or not? Is it, if it's purely for your advantage, then there's, you know, likely we're on uh, the wrong side of the line. Um, but if we're considering their advantage and helping them get their win as well, and if we are being open um, and not opaque, we're not lying, we're not doing any trickery, we're not holding things back, we're being as open as possible, and we're allowing them to say no. No, we're not forcing. We're not forcing them into a corner or anything like that. We're we're giving them a, a route out. Then I think 
that will help in in terms of that that dilemma that you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Simon, you've been an absolute champ. I appreciate you going through with this interview, despite the fact that you're you're fresh off COVID. But by the rules of the Sourcing Hero universe, I can't completely let you off the hook until I ask you the big question. And this is sort of like podcast hazing. This is the question that everyone who joins me here shares their perspective on. And you have a choice. And as you think about your answer, we can even broaden this a little further. You know, usually I will say to people, what does the idea of a sourcing hero mean to you? Or what does heroism mean in a business context? But given your time with diplomatic negotiators, hostage negotiators, people in very different walks of life that nonetheless have experiences and skills that are valuable in a corporate setting. We can make this as broadly as you like, Uh, but I would like to hear about your thoughts on the idea of heroism. Yeah. And what a question, what a question, you know, um, we need more heroes. We need more heroes. So it's great that you raise this at the end of every every podcast. Um, for me, heroism is about doing the right thing when it is difficult, when it requires bravery, when it is perhaps scary, when perhaps other people are saying, no, 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 it's the wrong thing, but you have a strong belief that actually, no, this is the right thing. So... I'm happy to answer it in a sourcing context um, because in a way it's it's the same as in a broader context, but just, yeah. just apply it to this context. And it's, for me, a sourcing hero is somebody who looks for the win-win, who, you know, we are um, told in business, we've got to squeeze them down. We've got to squeeze them for as much as we can. And I just don't think that that's a good approach overall, but even for selfish reasons, it's a really short-sighted approach. And I think the sourcing hero goes the opposite. They invest in their suppliers. They help their suppliers be as good a supplier as they possibly can be. You know, if if, if you're a car manufacturer, for example, the quality of the car that you sell is a function of the component parts that it's made up of. So in other words, you want all of those component parts from those suppliers to be as good component parts as possible. Um, So in the negotiation, you want to help the supplier get as good outcome for them, not at your expense, because these things aren't zero sum. That, That it's, in fact, you will get a better outcome if they get a better outcome. And I'll give you, I'll give you an example of that. One of the people uh, I interviewed in the book uh, was a billionaire. Now, this chap was tremendously impressive, as you, as you might expect. He's very intelligent, very charismatic, uh, very ambitious, all of, what, all of which you might expect. What was especially striking about this person was how ambitious he was for the other person. He was super ambitious for the other party in the negotiation. They, you know, they'd be saying, oh, we'd like to get X. And he'd look at it and he'd think and go, hmm, no, 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 no. We can get you much more than that. And he'd be negotiating them up 
rather than down. The point being that they would then go, oh, oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, I hadn't seen it like that way. Oh, great. And now they were fully inspired to work really hard and bring all of their energies to getting this ambitious outcome for them that was going to help him get his ambitious outcome. So now all of the energies were working together um, towards getting an ambitious outcome for everybody. So that's who my sourcing hero would be. And I think that is a, a position that any of us can easily aspire to want to find ourselves in, not only because it sounds like tremendous fun to be a billionaire, uh, but yeah. because we do want to be the kind of person that invests in relationships, that wants as much for everyone involved as they can possibly get. And I would venture to guess that you and I have persuaded quite a few people to be interested in reading both of your books. I highly encourage people to read both. Where is the best place for people to go if they want to buy your titles? Yep. Uh, best place to go if you want to buy the titles uh, is Amazon, I'm, I'm guessing. So Amazon.com, um, search for Simon Horton, change their mind, uh, and, and you'll find it. If you did want to go to my website, you can find it on there as well. Uh, it's www.negotiationmastery.com with a hyphen in between negotiation and mastery. And if people are interested in connecting with you personally, what's the best way for them to reach out? Love them to. LinkedIn. I'm, I'm reasonably active on LinkedIn, so love them to connect with me on LinkedIn. Excellent. Simon, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sourcing Hero Podcast. Join us again next time for more true stories of sourcing and business heroism performed by your colleagues and peers. Look for The Sourcing Hero wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to subscribe. Finally, don't forget, sourcing heroism is taking place all around us every day. Keep your eyes open and you're bound to see it. Until next time, I'm your host, Kelly Barner. Stay well and always remember that you can be a hero too.